0: Hello, this is the first of two episodes where I'll be sharing my conversation with Andy Marlow and Dick Clark from Envirotecture, which is a building design and architecture practice in Sydney specialising in sustainable and passive house homes. This conversation is packed full of fantastic advice and insights into how you design a home that is affordable and sustainable, and what to do if it also needs to be bushfire resistant as well. Both Andy and Dick have such great knowledge to share. I'm really looking forward to bringing their wisdom to you, so... Let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building, or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location, or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty-gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Welcome to Season 12 of the Get It Right podcast called Rebuild and Build Better. This season includes a range of conversations with some fantastic experts and professionals and we're diving into a range of topics related to rebuilding after bushfires, building or renovating in bushfire prone areas and more generally designing and building more resilient homes. This season of the podcast has been inspired by one of our Undercover Architect course members who has over 20 years experience in disaster recovery and saw the need, given our recent summer bushfires in Australia, for a resource to help people rebuilding their homes after bushfire. He's been a great help to me in connecting me with information and people I can now share with you. You can see video versions of all of our interviews, as well as get a copy of the full transcripts plus loads more helpful resources for your journey on the Undercover Architect website. Head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all the info you need to rebuild and build better. Now let's get on with the episode. So let me introduce you to Dick Clark and Andy Marlow from EnviroTecture and tell you a little bit more about them both. Dick Clark is a Principal of Envirotecture and he is an accredited building designer with over 35 years experience focusing exclusively on ecological, sustainable and culturally appropriate buildings, as well as sustainable design in vehicles and vessels and he's received many design awards. Dick holds a Master of Sustainable Futures degree by research at the Institute of Sustainable Futures at UTS on the topic of the effect of state and local planning instruments on the sustainability of the built environment. He's the Director of Sustainability and the Past President of the New South Wales Chapter of Building Designers of Australia and he's Past President and Board Member of the Association of Building Sustainability Assessors. Dick has a plethora of other accolades and roles that he's contributed in the industry over his career. He's been a Design Director of many hundreds of projects over 35 years with sustainability as the major driver over that whole period with what would have been an ever-changing understanding of what sustainability actually is. And he's often called on for expert comment on sustainable design and due to his experience as a rural firefighter bushfire resilient design as well. Now Andy Marlow is a director at Envirotecture and he holds both bachelor's and master's degree in architecture. He's also a certified passive house designer and he has extensive experience in sustainable design at a variety of scales. Andy is driven by a desire for all people to live work and play in buildings that make them happier. He believes that good design should be accessible to and benefit all not just those who commission it. Andy is currently a board member of the Australian Passive House Association. He speaks regularly at conferences and events on sustainability issues, design principles, material specifications, community engagement and the future of our cities, including the national conferences of both the Planning Institute of Australia and the Green Building Council of Australia. And recently they started a new business, Passive House Design and Construct. Frustrated by the big challenge that many experience in their new home journey, that is creating a sustainably designed home that can be delivered on a budget, they decided to marry together the design and construction in a total delivery model. Currently New South Wales-based with plans to extend all over Australia, Passive House Design and Construct delivers complete, quality, cost-effective design and build solutions. And they design healthy, comfortable homes built to work efficiently from the day you move in and for decades into the future. You ultimately enjoy cost certainty, quality design, an excellent build and a certified passive house because it's their passion to make homes that are better for everyone. And we'll hear more about passive house design and construct as a business in part two of the conversation in our next episode. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Now before I kick off the episode, I did want to mention unfortunately the audio on this and in the next episode, it has challenges in parts, but I would really love if you could stick with it because it's such hugely valuable information in in both these episodes. The day of recording though the internet just did not want to play along. Our call kept dropping out. Uh, Andy and Dick were absolute champions though. They'd come into the office especially for our interview online. This was sort of mid-COVID when we were all in lockdown and they spent far longer with me than had been originally planned we were all dealing with the frustrations of internet not working and i wanted to make sure that i brought you all of our conversation because it's seriously it's just packed full with such valuable information so What we've done is we fully transcribed it, of course, which is the same with all of our season 12 episodes, and you can grab the transcripts on the website. And in the interview, there'll be a few places where I jump in and I'll be quoting or outlining what Andy or Dick's response was at that point to make sure that you can hear all of their great advice. Okay, so stick with it. Let's jump right now into part one. Well, Andy and Dick, it's fantastic to have you here. I'm actually really excited about the conversation we're gonna be having. I think that loads of people will find it really helpful, um, whatever kind of project they're planning. And I know, as I said to you before we jumped on, the more research I've done about you guys and your experience and the plans that you have for the future, the more excited I am about sharing you with the UA community. So. I'm gonna dive straight into our questions. And uh, I, I actually read when I was doing my research on on your LinkedIn profile, Dick, that you said that Envirotexture, uh, we have designed lots of award-winning buildings and pride ourselves on making them affordable too. We can do $50,000 renovations, project homes, multi million dollar homes, and Green Star commercial and public buildings. We only have one criteria for our clients. Do you wanna do good sustainable design? Yes, you're in, let's get on with it. No, then maybe we are not the right design practice for you. And I have so many homeowners who will come to me at the beginning of their journey and say, I want to do a sustainable home. But every person I talk to just tells me it's going to be more expensive, more difficult. I'm setting myself up for a really, you know, treacherous road. So... Before we, I suppose, we dive into some of the other material that we're going to be chatting about, I'd really love to understand from a practice point of view how you guys balance sustainability and affordability and then also the incorporation of Passive House into that process as well in terms of working on your projects and working with your clients.
1: Well, I guess fundamentally I don't see sustainability as being a separate thing in in the design and construction process. Um, I, I see it as, as being just what you aim for and there might be things that are a little bit different that you're doing that you might not otherwise do and often there are, but quite often it's just a case of getting the lines in the right place on the page at concept stage and, and then being consistent with that intention all the way through. Um, and a lot of, for instance, the materials that we use are common building materials, and it's just if they're used in the right way, put in the right places, facing the right way, etc., then that costs no more. It's just a case of, you know, making sure that things are,
2: um, are done correctly.
1: So I, I don't – I've never really understood why people see sustainability as this boogeyman that, that jumps up somewhere through the design and construction process and starts gobbling budget. It's just not how it works.
0: I'm just going to jump in here because at this point, Andy – actually added the following statement he said I guess in a lot of especially larger projects he used to work for a larger practice sustainability was often something that was bolted on to an existing design and that's of course the point where it all falls apart because a It's an add-on so therefore it added cost but also it was really easy to un-add it which is what you'll see all the time. If you've got a cohesive design it's very very hard to remove you know for example the windows from the job because it ceases to actually function. So if you can get it all ingrained, embedded and coordinated from the get-go most of your battles are won. Yeah, it's very true. I talk a lot with the UA community about the importance of investing in the design process, that that's where all the magic gets made or all the failures, you know, can happen. And so it's, it's, a very, it's very counterintuitive to the, a lot of the ways that we uh, build houses in Australia because we're often used to picking something out of a catalogue or even a lot of homeowners having a go at designing them themselves. And so without understanding that importance of how the sustainability results get set up in the actual design process it can seem like that bolt-on approach afterwards, which then becomes a bit of a greenwash, you know, add a rainwater tank, pick certain materials, that kind of stuff. But I love the idea that it's actually, you know, it's, 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 it's something we talk a lot about on undercover Architect. It's not about all the things that you do later. It's actually about where you start from and prioritising those decisions from the outset. Yeah. Andy had some interesting insights into this prioritisation piece. He actually spoke to me about the fact that most clients start with a budget and a brief of some description, which I completely agree with. And then... Most people may not compromise on the number of bedrooms and bathrooms and the size of a garage they want, for example. However, if one of your non-negotiables is, I want a certified passive house, then you'll find that there's ways to deliver that. But it actually may mean compromising on the number of rooms or the things that you have in your home or the specific finishes and features that you want. Andy actually added that you can make the choice to prioritize whatever you like. But to get to the end of a project and say that you couldn't afford to do specific things is usually not correct. It's that you chose to prioritize other things instead. That may sound quite harsh but it's something that I see really frequently happen for homeowners and it's something that I talk about to my UA course members. I actually say that it's really worthwhile checking your language when you talk about the things that you want in your home, because often people will describe them as needs. I need four bedrooms, I need two bathrooms, I need a two-car garage. But it's rare that people actually say, I need sustainability, I need a certified passive house. And so what's fascinating for me is that When you actually assess the things that we truly need as humans, they're not usually including things like four bedrooms and two bathrooms and a double car garage. So I recommend to people to help them with that, that awareness of their prioritization that they just switch out need for want. And it means then you can actually assess what are all of your wants and what wants are more valuable to you so that you can really weigh that all up and be more intentional about what you're focusing on as the priorities for your project. Andy actually in our conversation he cited a project that they did in Viratexure where it cost less to do the home as a passive certified house than it did as a passive solar house and that was due to a bunch of changes that they made that the client agreed to and these changes didn't involve reducing the size of the home but what was essential was that prioritized, prioritization process up front and After Andy's comment about this, which was just awesome to hear, I jumped in to reply this way. Yeah, and you're so right that it's that prioritisation conversation at the very beginning that's so fundamental. But if people aren't starting in that place, but they're instead starting with a shopping list of all the rooms that they want, then often it can be too far down the track for them to reassess what those priorities are unless they're willing to go back a fair few Mm. steps. So... I, um, yeah, I see so many homeowners, it's a bit of a sidebar, but I see so many homeowners, they will spend time on their, their design themselves, or perhaps they might work with a builder and their drafts person, And then they get to the point where they realize that it's probably not going to work as well as it should or could. And then they go, well, we're too far down the track, we'll just keep going, because they don't want to let go of the sunk cost in that kind of process. And it's like, hang on you're about to live in this thing for 10 20 years Um, let's look at what the right side of the equation of where the time kind of thought process is before you worry about the next few months let's actually you've got a beautiful golden window of opportunity here to go no we're doing we're going down the wrong path let's track back and and um and revisit so Um, Now you've got a lot of expertise as a company in designing for bushfire prone areas and so I really love to think more about you know you talk about the fact that sustainability is about something that happens at the beginning that approach uh, you know your prioritization Mm -hmm. so how do you balance then the sustainability the affordability and the bushfire resistant um, design and and construction uh, in the homes that you design because you know I'm really curious to hear sort of what kinds of things that you're targeting in order to be able to balance the budget. A lot of people, when they see a BAL rating on their site, will think just of a whole heap of dollar signs that are going to get added to their home. How are you navigating this with your clients and their budgets to help them understand how to get this um, affordability, sustainability and bushfire resistance in their projects?
1: So I, I actually don't think that the lower BAL ratings, that is sort of BAL low up to BAL 40, are particularly problematic. The lowest ones are actually a walk in the park. When you get to Bell 29 and Bell 40, sure, there are some constraints there and, and a little bit of discipline is required as common sense dictates. And that all makes perfect sense. And they're not major cost obstacles. Uh, when we get to Bell Flame Zone, said, FZ, yeah, different story. That has some real issues and there are major cost obstacles, mostly around glazing, but also um, you know the, the the wall and roof constructions and so on. And and I think uh, hopefully the the current reviews in in New South Wales and federally um, might shed some light on whether it's even useful. There are now thousands of buildings that have been bow rated to the the 2010 standard that have been subject to to bushfire events. We should, over that number of buildings now, have some kind of statistically meaningful um, data on, on whether it actually provides any benefit or not. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't build to the, the uh, to high standards at all. Um, clearly, we, we do need to. We just need to know that the actual, um, the details that we've created and the requirements around shuttering and so on, that they actually do work as they are currently, uh, you know, put forward. So, um, in answer to your question, uh, if it's BAL 40 or less, I, I don't see that as being problematic. It, it can be quite consistent. And, and that just gets in, incorporated into the design concept and the material selections and detailing and so on. Bow flame zone, they've said, yeah, different story. There, there are some problems there, but there are problems across the board whether you have a sustainability focus in, on your project or not.
0: Now, many people who are building in a bow rated area, they'll immediately talk about materials and glazing and um, you know the the add-on things, I suppose, that they have to think about to meet their BAL rating. But the building form itself, as you indicated there, can actually be a great contributor to the home's ability to meet its BAL rating. So can you please help people understand a little bit more about What might be things to consider? What might be really good driving factors for them in uh, their form and their layout, so that they can look to how they're going to meet their bow rating through those things, rather than all of you know relying on all of the applied methods um, after the fact.
1: Um, So, so yeah, the building form certainly is a a factor, and and it's one that I don't think the AS3959 really has enough to say about. Because the simpler the form you have, uh, the easier it is to to, for instance, um, manage ember build-up, um, if you have a complex roof form, you, you're going to have embers build, building up and, and that's potentially uh, quite fatal for a building. Um, but also simplicity of form means that when you get into the, the higher the high bell ratings and you have um, more expense to spend on the, 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 the actual wall and roof construction, every time you've got a corner, corners cost. And so any kind of junction, you know, it's just adding cost and complexity. So the simpler the form, the cheaper it's going to be to build and uh, the less wastage of material, there are, you know, spin-offs all the way. Um, so, yeah, that, that's my feeling on form that, you know, it's something which which we do consider here and uh, it's, I guess it's something that I have put forward to a number of clients and, and on that, especially around things like roof geometry, we do get... Um, yeah, you know, a certain amount of kickback I get, from, get from clients who are saying, oh, but it looks, you know, a little bit plain. And we're going, oh, plain, or is that just simple elegance?
2: <laughs> yeah, the simplicity is, is probably the, the, the easiest place to start. It, it keeps, in terms of both the, the risk and bushfire point of view, but the sustainability stuff gets a whole lot easier when you've got simple forms. cuz like, except corners are an additional cost. Um, thermally, they're normally, well, they're always worse. So you're just taking away a lot of the pain points and um, there's a bit of an argument made that, you know, boxes are, are less attractive. Um, well, when you look inside every single room in your house, you'll find that they're all boxes. Um, so it turns out that everyone's quite happy with boxes from the inside, just not necessarily the out. <laughs>
0: Uh, Yeah, it's uh, I think that it's quite interesting. I'm often talking to homeowners about, you know, some of the best design actually demonstrates the highest level of restraint and that when we do restrain ourselves rather than try and trick things up with decoration or, you know, stepping walls in and out and being fiddly with the proportions, then that pared back elegance. Can speak volumes, and for a home feeling, I suppose calmer and uh, yeah, less less cluttered and more more relaxing and more welcoming. So it's just getting the balance right, I think. And but we, yeah, I think because yeah. a lot of the times homeowners, in particular, they might be looking at an elevation, so they're looking at this two dimensional drawing, trying to understand a three dimensional shape, and so they look for things like symmetry or patterns or those kinds of things, not understanding that in a volume that's going to look entirely different. So it's absolutely um, Mm -hmm. i'd love to chat to you about your project the Mudgy uh hempcrete house and i'm going to pop a link in the resources for everyone to have a look at it because there's some fantastic video and um, images of the home that really illustrate how it works and the area that it was built in wasn't deemed uh bushfire prone which we spoke about you know uh in some (laughs) previous conversations how odd that is that it wasn't Mm -hmm. deemed to be bushfire Mm -hmm. prone um yet you sensibly took prote- took measures to add uh, protective features to the home, uh, should any um, fire come through there. So now I'm curious, how did you and the client navigate that whole process about making the decisions to add those protective features and the, the the ones that you chose? I suppose how you sort of assessed what was going to be important to include and how you the strategy overall with creating that home in that location.
1: Yeah, it wasn't bushfire prone. We did a site inspection even when I had a look at it on the aerial mapping before we went to site, it was clear it's in a beautiful bit of remnant box forest uh, over which there are now um, quite strong conservation controls to, to protect the remaining box forest in, in the central, central west of New South Wales. Awesome. And, uh, and so on the one hand, you know, the last thing we wanted to do was start creating massive APZs 200 metres wide, but uh, we had to you know, design a building which would cope with the real risk uh, on a, a north-northwest-facing slope, so that was um, where that came to. And look, I mean, I had a phone call with a uh, a person the other day who's designing a house in Greenwich in Sydney, which is a harbourside suburb, and they're classified as flame zone because there's because there's a little finger of bush that 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 they're beside um, that you could walk across in probably a hundred strides, um, but because of their proximity and, and the rigid the, the rigid nature of the um, the standards methodology they get classified as flames it has zero fire history and i think negligible fire risk
0: i'm going to jump in here because dick went on to add some great information here so i'll quote him he said and so on the one hand you kind of go well that makes no sense then mudgie made no sense and it undermines your confidence well it can undermine your confidence in the mapping and so on so i think that's something you know that the powers that be have to address and get right However, back to Mudgee. So the design brief that we took from our client, basically, you know, our conceptual process is that we see that the design brief is kind of posing a question that the design concept seeks to answer. So it's critical we get the question right. There may be more than one right answer. And the right answer that we came up with to the good questions indicated that it was a longish building and that the Western end was quite exposed to fire coming out through the box forest and then through the grassland and possibly to the trees immediately beside the building. And so that was why we set the building up with fundamentally a flame zone type of shuttering protection on the Western end, which we then got. It's operable with this funky kind of winch arrangement. So Handy and I have been keen sailors. We went up and we set the whole thing up and it has this kind of dual purpose of creating very controllable deep shading to the Western sun in summer. So we were able to, you know, spend some money on the fire protection and get the added benefit of summer shading as well. And I'll just add in here, they've got a YouTube clip of what the mudgy home looks like and how it operates. And I've uh, put that in the resources so that you can check that out as well. And you can actually see what this home looks like finished. Now, Andy at this point added, and I'm going to quote him as well. He said, it's integrated design, I guess is the thing. We need to solve that bushfire threat problem and the Western shading problem. There's a lot of glass that faces West in the house and it's mudgy. So in summers it's hot and in winter it's cold. You know, They're good windows to start with, but Even good glass doesn't do much for Western summer sun. And so the fact that we get value out of the shade of the shutters for the shading, well, it's fairly, fairly compelling argument for getting it done. And Dick wrapped up by adding this. He said, it works like a broad brimmed hat. You can pull it down low over your eyes in summer when the sun's westering in the afternoon. But in winter, you can kind of, you know, tip your hat back on your head and get the sun on your face. And in that context, it's a hempcrete house and a hemp line composite or hempcrete is inherently fireproof. So that was the other kind of fundamental construction technique that we used to ensure that it was a fire safe house. The video footage is fantastic showing how those shutters close down and and the level of adaptability they have um, and adjustability. And uh, so, yeah, I really encourage people to check out the links and, and see that. Can you talk through the choice about hempcrete and a little bit more about hempcrete for people that aren't familiar with it as a material? I know that a lot of people sort of look at these alternative materials and think, oh, that might be a nice idea, but am I going to run into problems having somebody being able to do it? Is it going to perform long-term like it should, even though these things have been, you know, buildings have been built out of this stuff long before we were here. So how how was, what was the selection process for choosing hempcrete and sort of going about including that in the home? So Dick's fantastic response to my question was this. He actually said, yes, the oldest hempcrete building that we know of in Japan predates Lieutenant James Cook's incursion onto the east coast of Australia by at least 50 years. So yes, there's longevity. Certainly that's one of its strong suits. But it's got many, many benefits as a material. The low embodied energy, the fact that it's a carbon sequestration material, its fireproofness, its high insulation values. Yes, there are lots of really good reasons to use it. If it's formed up tightly, crisply and placed well, even artistically, when it's exposed off form internally, it can be the whole wall can be a work of art. So there are things you can do with it in that regard. It does have to be rendered externally to give it a rain skin, but it's also the way it handles humidity. It's kind of an honest broker for internal humidity, which gives any building a major head start in its management of the internal environment. And I suppose the number of builders now, as you say, there's been quite a lot of interest in the last five years. We've seen it accelerate dramatically. And a lot of builders now are keen to do training and at least get one hempcrete building under their belt, which we're obviously encouraging. So there's lots of options. I think that for even builders who, and for architects who might say, oh yeah, I'd be happy to design it, but who's going to build it? And how do I know I can get control of costs and so on? So there are a number of people out there who can subcontract the installation of hemp. And once it's designed the correct way and everything's done, it actually becomes quite easy from there on in now. It was probably a little bit harder 10 years ago. Andy then added this to the conversation he said like all systems it effectively requires you know it's not the same as other systems which is why it's different so it does require a bit of thought on back to first principles when you first start to make sure that everything's going to come together but like most things that are designed with a bit of thought you know you can get most of the way there the first time and then the second and the third time get heaps easier and then Dick followed with this beautiful comment which I loved hearing him say. He actually said, there's also a really collegiate community of hemp builders and uh, hemp designers. We get inquiries from other designers and architects on occasion saying, you know, I've got this detail, you know, this is what I'm thinking. Is this the right way to do it? What do you think? And so we'll have a little bit of to and fro and make suggestions. And so nobody's kind of doing the cloak of dagger in, oh, these are my details and you're not having a look at that. And that's quite consistent with the whole sustainability community, a really open collegiate knowledge-sharing attitude, which is fantastic. And Andy agreed with Dick and he added this. Yeah, it's really growing the pie rather than growing your slice of mentality. Passive house is the same. Sustainability is the same. It's the nature of the people involved. And then I jumped back in yeah that's been my experience too it's been beautiful to see that there's such an attitude of a rising tide floats all boats and our value proposition here is so much bigger than the immediate project that we're working on this is about us actually you know impacting change and proving that there's a better way for us to do you know things like building and renovating and so we're all about supporting each other I found that when I started connecting with the Passive House community and uh, with architects and designers and builders who have a sustainability focus there's a lot of generosity purely driven from the passion that they have to see this be the way that we do things so it's um it's a great bunch of like I think that that's if you want to work with great people build a sustainable home because you will (laughs) immediately tap into people who have core values that are about you know generosity and um and improvement overall so now Dick I listened to a really great interview uh that you did I think with architecture and it was on the architecture and design website, and I'll pop a link to it in the resources as well. And in it, you said um, some fantastic things, uh, including that following these fires, we can't build back the buildings as they were. And that's the common message that I'm actually getting from a lot of people that I'm speaking to, that this is a chance for us to do something different uh, in terms of how we consider rebuilding in these areas, and also just the strategies with which we create homes in these kinds of areas full stop. So you actually... Uh, It was really interesting, one of the ideas you proposed was an idea of doing almost disposable-type housing, that you accept the fact that you can't build a fortress-like house that will sustain itself through these kinds of conditions and that you instead build something where you can evacuate quickly and take everything with you and build a much lower-cost house as a result that's far easier to replace um, financially. And, you know, you've written an article about a home that you designed for a friend in 2003 and uh, that prior, it was done prior to all of the introduction of the Australian standards in 2009, 2010, um, but that unfortunately the Gospers Mountain Fire uh, destroyed that home. And so I wanted to just to chat through how seeing that home be lost actually has uh, impacted how you'll potentially rebuild back on that site and also just re- the kinds of advice that you'll give homeowners in these types of areas for the design mm. and construction of their homes generally.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting exercise, and I have to say that we expected the homeowner in that case to be more traumatised than they ultimately were. Their their particular world view, I guess, leads them to um, to not sort of pin all of their self worth on the things that they own. Um, so that's and that's obviously a, a good thing, I think, for any human. Um, to do because if you know there are always circumstances wherein we can lose material things and if if our whole kind of sense of self worth is attached to those things then you go down the drain with them so um, it's good to have your self worth attached to other things that are more real yeah yeah you know relationships and and so on um, so. That that uh, little property in, in Laguna, which is near Wollombi, um, surrounded by Yango National Park, is a really good case study because it did not burn down from direct flame attack. It burnt down from ember attack. And it was built to the old Australian standard as 39591999 1999, I think was the the previous iteration. I can't remember exactly which year, but, but it was built in 2002, well, approved in 2002-03 uh, and Built over the sort of following ten years, uh, we'd go up and you know put in weekends and things to to put it together, and and it was a lovely property and, and uh, we had a ball. Uh, lots of people, um, you know, sort of a broad community of twenty or thirty people would get up there every Easter and just you know have the most wonderful time. And um, uh, the the because it was built to the old standard, uh, which was definitely less stringent than the the 2010 standard we had things like uh, hardwood decks admittedly they were from the sacred species as we call them or the sacred list meaning the 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 819 species that are considered um, fire resistant and and there were some poles that were used in the the sort of exo structure which were and they they were charred but they were still standing at the end uh, when everything else, the, the internal frames, the radiata frames had just vaporised. There was not even a white ash trace of remnant of the softwood. It, it was just gone. So the things that we would do differently now, because it is a, a retreat, it's not a permanent residence, we have to assume that there's going to be no one there to protect it again, as there was not last time, i.e. it was left to its own devices. So we will be doing things like not having any Timber exposed outside at all, and we'll probably put on a um, a roof drenching system uh, um, which may be remotely operated as well so that um, you know when the fire's being monitored from afar it can be can be turned on but apart from that, yeah that one probably won't get designed that much differently uh, because everything else uh, oh sorry the, the first iteration also had little windows which uh, met the BAL rating at the time, um, but because of the plastic clips, of course, that, you know that that's not a good idea. So, so they won't be used again. Um, but we'll build it back to bal forty standard and uh, and put in some autonomous protection systems and see how it goes. In response to the the question about disposable homes, it, it's not something which I necessarily subscribe to, but I think it's worth investigating and and doing some serious modelling on because. It may be that, that we do get a better net result because the alternative is um, putting an awful lot of carbon debt into buildings to withstand fire and or removing an awful lot of biodiversity to, to reduce the fire risk. And, and I think both those things are undesirable. So is, a, you know, is it worth building disposable buildings? The the, the I guess the idea was first raised back when when um, the Houses of the Future mm-hmm. uh, display was done, uh, which was you know, that was on the Opera House forecourt. Gosh, that's going back a few years, 2005. Yeah, mid 2000s. Yeah. And there was a cardboard house. There was literally a cardboard house. I
0: remember.
1: Um, on display, and and that was when the, the discussion kind of first came up. Uh, and, and I think it's worth looking at. So we we can certainly make the insulation work, we can make the structure work using things like you know cardboard or, or very fast-growing softwoods. Where I think the the question mark is raised is, is around um, the external cladding materials. It's kind of hard to to come up with something that is has got useful longevity um, that doesn't have a significant carbon debt. But especially around glazing that to to get the thermal performance to the point where these things would not be chewing through heating and cooling energy, then we have to have good glazing, and it's kind of hard to come up with good glazing that doesn't have a big carbon debt.
2: Yes. It's, I, think, I think that it feeds into the, the the balance that's always been going on around around bushfire and, and where homes are to begin with, and I think all the terrible things that have happened in the last six months are going to really bring a lot of these things to the fore because there's a huge number of buildings that, were, that have burnt down, and we've got a client who has a house that burnt down, which we had no involvement in, but, you know, we're kind of staying in touch with what they're doing. And they're incredibly um, bushfire prone and they will end up with an FZ rating if, if they try and build back legitimately, because um, it's, you know, it's sort of bush block kind of stuff. And there's all these people who own places that are effectively going to be financially unviable to build on. And as, at a societal level, we don't have an answer to that right now. So this idea of something that you basically are saying it's going to burn every X number of years isn't, shouldn't be taken literally, but it is the starting point for the discussion about where the lines should be. And, and also just politically, there's going to be a lot of pushback because if, if there are a lot of flame zone places that come up, people are effectively gone from owning a house that was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars on a nice block of land to owning a field. And they're going to, there's going
1: to be a lot of pain. It's also um, the double whammy of climate change, which is going to make fire events worse whether we like it or not, and we're locked into that. That's, just, that's a freight train.
0: At this point, Dick spoke about how we as a society respond to situations where, you know, people's homes are threatened in locations, that if we went back in time, they possibly never should have been released for sale. And do we as a society now have a responsibility to buy that land back? He spoke specifically about the foreshore land up and down the east coast and in particular the Collaroy-Narrabeen Strip where in 2016 the big east coast flow swept away coastline and it almost took a swimming pool with it. You may remember the footage and the news images. And he said this. He said that was a fordune that was built on and that was a buffer zone. It was a shock absorber to the sea. It never should never have been built on. But to undo that, we've either got to wind back the clock to 1900 Or as a society, we have to say, okay, we'll buy those blocks back. And the current owners of those blocks of land are going to say, well, each of those blocks of land is probably worth $4 bucks, And that's a big, you know, it's a big lump of money for the community as a whole, all of us taxpayers to come up with. But those are the questions that, you know, they're they're really big ones. And I know they're not going to get answered this year. The pollies are going to run scared from that sort of stuff. But in 10 years, we might be addressing those things seriously. It won't be anytime soon. Yeah, it's such a multi-layered thing, isn't it? Because it works from the individual who might be in an area that's actually, you know, they went there because they wanted to have a simpler lifestyle, have something that was more strongly connected with nature that wasn't as expensive to purchase and set themselves up on, and then they... You know, they built something that was was prior to the the introduction of these rules. It's non-compliant now. It's been lost. They have to rebuild according to much higher codes. That then brings a cost constraint that they can't afford, or if they can afford, they then potentially can't get it insured because no insurance company is going to um, cover a house that will potentially be lost again. So, um, and absolutely. It's just, uh, there's the, you know, the individual challenges of, of financing your own project in these types of areas right through to the responsibility we have as a community to take care of everyone and make, yeah, make decisions that are, are for the betterment of everyone involved. It's, um, it's a very complex issue. I'm, I'm hoping that it's been interesting. The research I've done following the 2009 fires, it was a very different rollout of events obviously and obviously it accelerated the introduction of the australian the new australian standard um, mm. but there was a very much a push to get people rebuilding with immediacy and urgency and get these communities reestablished and i you know the 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 conversations i've had with the people that were involved in that recovery effort at the time have spoken about the fact that that's probably not been the best result that it's meant that people didn't get the chance mm. to kind of help themselves process the decision-making around was that the best strategy for us or should we have done something different? And I'm hoping that this time, just with how the situation has rolled out and unfortunately, obviously, the pandemic shutting everybody down, that maybe the silver lining of that is that there's been an opportunity to pause and consider, you know, do we have a different strategy for how we roll this forward and what does that look like? So that, yeah, there is just that breathing space to make potentially better decisions and it's it's interesting like your your conversation about the disposable I've uh, spoken to Chris Clark who is a builder His home was uh, featured in the very first episode of Grand Designs Australia. And so he is a builder that created his own home, built it across the course of two years. And a week after the home was complete, it was lost in the 2009 fires. And so he then rebuilt something smaller, something, um, you know, that was much more fireproof, had a whole bunch of strategies. Mm. And he actually said the first house was for uh, statement. This house is for me. And I'm going to make it fireproof, and I'm, you know, and so it's a, a much smaller footprint. He reused as much as he could on the site, and now he mm. has gone forward with looking at modular building. And his, he's, you know, uh, the, there's these ideas that are you actually better off putting modular homes in these kinds of locations where you can actually take your asset with you. Should it look like it's under threat, you know, you pick up the whole thing and drive it away, rather than yeah. you trying to leave it there and protect it and and potentially risk your life and your property. So. That's-
1: And that necessarily
0: means that they are smaller buildings. Most definitely. So I'm hoping that there's going to be lots of great ideas that give people opportunities to do something affordable in these areas. How did you enjoy that? Thanks so much for persevering with the audio. I do hope that you found it worthwhile and incredibly helpful information. Now, in the next episode, Andy and Dick will be back for part two of our conversation. We're going to be going more uh, into more detail about Passive House and also talking specifically about the opportunity that the Passive House model and the process actually provides you to protect your indoor air quality. The bushfires and the smoke pollution that many areas in Australia suffered from over our summer of 2019-2020, it really tested the air filtration capacity of the Passive House system and there's some great information that Andy will share about testing results that they got and how that all worked so that you can see in practice what that might mean for your own home. We're also going to be talking about the active systems that you can use to create better fire protection for your home things like sprinklers and those types of things and we're going to be talking more about Andy and Dick's other business Passive House Design and Construct and what it offers for those who are wanting to manage budget and sustainability whilst creating a Passive House certified home remember to head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all that we're sharing in the rebuild and build better series and bookmark it so that you can keep checking back as it grows as an online hub for anyone rebuilding after bushfires or wanting to build better and more resilient homes. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.